Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. Welcome back to another episode of the State of America podcast. I am one of your hosts for this episode, Ian Rice. And with me, as always, is my partner in crime here, Mr. David Hudson. David, how are you? I am well, Ian. I am sitting here. I had the day off today, and I'm trying to recover from uh, Game of Thrones last night. Uh, oh man, it was terrible. It was as if George Lucas got a hold of Star Wars and the prequels. Uh, but uh, we had a huge, really big party here at my house last night. My wife and I had been planning it for a month or so, and uh, we went all out with uh, the food and decorations and everything. And uh, the my smoked chicken wings sadly were the highlight of the night. It was not. Uh, it was not the game of. Th- it was not Game of Thrones. Yes, I, I'm going to sound like Mr. Too Cool for the Room, but I've actually never seen an episode of Game of Thrones. But I heard it was a lot of disappointment over the ending. It really was, and I, I didn't really get into it till like last year. We had a problem with, um, I had at the time, um, AT&T U-verse, and I'm not for sure of all the mechanics on it, but they have like a hub in our neighborhood. It's actually, in the hub is pretty much in my front yard. Something went crazy with it, and it took them like three weeks to get the part to fix it. So I didn't have internet, internet or cable uh, for like a month. So we'd heard about Game of Thrones, and we just went and bought it on DVD at Best Buy the first season. And right. I watched it passively. My wife got into it, and then this past January, I binge-watched like all 75 hours or whatever of it. <laughs> and it, and it, like the last six weeks, I've just been into it every every uh sunday night and then at work we talk about it all day monday and it was terrible so you didn't miss anything were you were you a seinfeld fan yes yeah it was i I would rate as far as logic goes this final seinfeld episode had more logic to it if you can believe that than uh than the game of thrones so an episode where people were put on trial for being bad people made more sense than the final episode of game of thrones there's a lot of a lot of shows that you get committed to that go that way i remember i feeling that way with uh, uh i was big into lost at the time and then also the um sopranos i followed that and i even stuck with that i had a friend my friend and i watched that you know religiously and uh he bailed out the the last two seasons he wasn't even involved and i still stuck with it and i thinking there was going to be some huge payoff and Nothing. Yeah, instead we get Journey. That that's my favorite. Yeah. That's my favorite television show of all time. The Sopranos. Matter of fact, um, I was watching two episodes this afternoon. I'm re- I'm going through it now for the sixth time, watching it. And every time I pick up on something uh, that I you know never picked up on. And when I was in college, uh, in grad school, there were two of my friends. We'd come over every Sunday night, and we'd all like bring an Italian dish and drink red wine and watch. Uh, <laughs> Watch the Sopranos, but anyway, uh, it was uh, it was frustrating. But that's what I get for getting uh, too invested into a TV show. It says more bad about me than it does about the people that write the show. <laughs> but uh, so uh, normally we uh, we get these things going with a little uh, chat about what's presently going on in the uh, Black Crows universe, so to speak. But uh, things are a little quiet uh, right about now. Yeah, and that's disturbing. There's uh, there's no Magpie dates. 
Um, I think there's one date in July that I, I've seen somebody say is out there at a festival. But uh, man, the longer this thing drags on, um, the more you have to think something's going on. Either they're just not going to do Magpie anymore, or you know that Mark is out, or you know that the crows are going to get back together in some incarnation. The only thing that stops me from really getting too deep into the into that rumor mill is that they're all so big on the material that's slated, you know, to be on that second high water, you know, album, and I can't believe they would just leave that on the table. But I, you know what? I, as I'm as I'm saying that, I'm thinking, well, the Black Crows left tons of great material on the table, so yeah. you never know. Yeah, the thing that that I I think is is odd is I've been told by people that the attendance was improving on this last tour uh, from the first time they came through towns, uh, which is, you know, which is good because th- there's no way they financially could have kept that first incarnation of the band. I mean, it's like 10 people in the band, uh, you know, they, yeah. they stripped it down. I just, I feel like this is my honest feelings. If something happens and the crows get back together and who knows who the second guitar player would be. But if it's not Mark, I worry that after... Because the Crows thing, I, I, you would think it, it can't be a permanent gig. I worry that when that's over with, Rich and Mark, they can't go back to Magpie. Which I like Rich's solo stuff, but I, I enjoy the Magpie better. And I enjoy the kind of the vibe they put off in the shows better than Rich solo stuff. Yeah, it's... Uh, I I really got big into the magpie like right from right from jump street i uh i liked what they were about what they were doing um and i i really like to see that keep going because to me that that ultimately seems the most genuine option you know what i mean whereas uh you know i i just don't know how there's too much too much that was said after the you know the the quote-unquote final uh you know, breakup of the of the Black Crows. The, too much said between the three key guys that it would just seem very disingenuous to be like, hey, just kidding. You know, um, I don't know if they could pull that off. They would, they would for sure just basically have to come out and say we're doing it for the money. Yeah, uh, because or I, you know, some real big revelation happened. You know, right? Because um, I just don't see. I don't know. I don't see that. Um, I don't see that taking off as far for any reason other than for money, but. Have you seen the um, CRB set list? You know they're back on tour now without Adam. Oh, they um, they did go back out on the road. Yeah, and it's I think they've played three shows, and by and large, it's more or less the same set list every night. Not changing it up, kind of it, going through I, the it's, motions. It's they basically playing about six songs off the new album, and then they've closed every night with a mandolin win, the Rod Stewart song, mm-hmm. um, and then they've you know there's probably two or three songs in there out of. 14 or 15 that they're rotating, you know, which is odd because, uh, you know, they very rarely play, you know, the same songs back to back nights, uh, a lot of times. So, um, you got to wonder if that's just kind of going through the motions. It, you know, that could also be a byproduct of, cause you saw this happen with, uh, with the crows a couple of times where they've had to switch out, uh, you know, a member and then have very limited time before they have to hit the road again. And that right. guy's got to learn all the songs, you know? Right. So they might just uh, have picked up a limited number of songs just to get back out on the well, road to fulfill those the, tour dates. The guy that's playing keyboards is only doing it the month of May. And then there's another guy coming in. 
So, so he might be that guy might be at home uh, learning the entire catalog yeah. right now. You know? Yeah, which you know, and when I saw them, uh, it was when um, Neil Casal was out for a couple of weeks, and it was Greg from the Mother Hips, and I saw them four nights apart, and it was probably seventy percent the same set list. So uh, kudos for anybody who can just step in and pl- especially play that kind of music with you know very little knowledge because it's so unstructured. You don't really know what to do. I would think at times. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's such a such a gray area of what's going on right now. This certain signs point to one thing, certain signs point to another thing. It's a very tense time to be a fan. <laughs> it's kind of like, um, not to get political, but it's kind of like that Mueller report. If you believe Donald Trump was uh, crooked, uh, that report says he's crooked. If you believe he's innocent, the report says he's innocent. It's kind of like with the crows. If you want to think they're getting back together, there's there's ample stuff to make you think it. And then if you think, oh, there's no way you can find reasons to, to back that belief up. This is very true. But, uh, so we, uh, we felt that, uh, this episode would be a good time to start with the, uh, delving into individual albums, just to give you a taste of another style of show we're going to be, uh, revisiting throughout. And, um, David and I both agreed that starting off with perhaps the most polarizing album in the Black Crows catalog would be a good idea. Uh, it's an album that uh, I know I definitely really like, and I really liked it when it was first released. Uh, I, I, I believe David primarily you know, likes the bulk of it as well, and that is uh, Lions, which was released 2001. Yeah, um, it was the first album, new album that came out after I went from being a casual fan to a... Um uh, you know, just obsessed fan. So I was really looking forward to it, uh, when it came out and, um, uh, I really like the album. Um, it has grown on me a lot over time. I went through a phase where I didn't like it because, um, I kind of got into just, you know, the, the three classic albums and I was like, uh, you know, this, this isn't as good, but th- there are a lot of really good songs on here, I think. And, when I first started my other podcast head episode, we ranked our, uh, uh, black crows, our, the black crows albums. And I think I had it at number six out of eight. And if I were redoing it right now, it would be, it would be number four after, you know, the three classic, uh, Ford era, uh, albums. But, uh, it was definitely a, a time of chaos in the band as far as, what direction they were going in and um, who was in the band. So, you know, sometimes that can create great music and sometimes the music can suffer. Um, I think personally that the good outweighs the bad. Yeah. I mean, I, I am very inclined to agree with that. The way I saw it, like in, in hindsight, the way it seems to me is it was a very rich led album. And I, I feel like maybe uh, Chris wasn't quite as invested in it as he needed to be um for whatever reason that might have been i mean like you know the the it it seems from from all all accounts that the the personal relationships within the within the band had kind of significantly deteriorated by that point so that you know that might have accounted for it but i mean it's a very riff heavy album it's it's the start of when rich was started using uh you know certain amplifiers and really having those deep guttural kind of riffs which carried over into a hookah brown and then subsequently his first kind of solo outing with uh, paper in that in that period of time 
So, you know, I could definitely see it being more of a rich affair. It got a lot of criticism, and and I still hear this from time to time when, when people bring it up, is that, oh, it was just, you know, they used Pro Tools, and they did this, and they did that, and it was just, you know, them trying to sound like a band when they really were just, a, you know, fragments of a band. But if you, if you look into it, you know, a lot of things I've read was they recorded it on tape and on Pro Tools, and they ended up using the version that was on tape. So, you know, it's kind of an unfair criticism of the album. Yeah, I had that written in my notes as well. So, I mean, if if they go with the analog, then the Pro Tools don't really come into play. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, and, you know, a lot of people criticized it too for, uh, you know, perhaps a lack of guitar solos and, and things like that. And if you're going to if you're going to take those three classic era records, you know, the Mark Ford stuff and compare it to that, it's not going to be the same. But it doesn't it, that doesn't necessarily equate into it being a, a bad album. And that me, was always the point I would try to make. Let me ask you this. If this came out, let's say, after Moneymaker, or even if it came out after Southern Harmony, do you think people would think different of it? I don't... Uh, I think where it came out is actually the perfect spot for it to have come out. Um, because it's very experimental, as far as as far as my tastes and my opinion goes. Um and perhaps too experimental for an audience that was just getting to know the band. You know, it's definitely something that would have had to have come along later, which I guess it would have been roughly like about ten years in at the time. Yeah, what Moneymaker came out in '90. Yeah, so but when they were recording it, roughly ten years in, um, and they, you know, they were they had a problem with Columbia, and they were able to get out of their contract uh, with Columbia. And go on to I think it see it was called V two Records. Yeah, it was an offshoot of Virgin. Yeah, and so I'm sure there was some um, concern, you know, about going to a new label. And one of the reasons I, I read that uh, um, Rich was upset with Columbia was he felt like they didn't push the By Your Side album, and uh, I believe some concessions were made by the band for the By Your Side album to make it a little more commercially you know appealing and so I, that would frustrate me if you know they had glossed it up a little bit more than they would like to have and then feel like the record company didn't back you on it yeah it's like do this and uh but we're not going to support it anyway you know that's and that's kind of a poor approach from the record company and i i guess that's a characteristic of the you know the larger record companies like columbia so they were i know they were originally they were on was it def jam american Rick Rubin's label, did, yeah, it was uh, American. Yeah, did that get bought up by um, Columbia? I think you, that was the deal. I think either got bought out by Columbia or it started being distributed by Columbia. But you know, it was that's how they, you know, they they wound up on Columbia by default. Really, you know, they didn't change labels. Their just label got assumed by a larger label. Well, Rich said that he, that Columbia wanted them to basically keep making "Shake Your Money Maker" type songs, and like from a record company standpoint, I get it. Like that was their most commercially successful record, but from you know an artistic standpoint, I mean that's going backwards is never good. You know, it's just never it never works out. No, and you're asking a guy at that point, Rich would have been what like twenty eight, twenty nine, thirty years old, to go back and try to write like he did when he was nineteen. I mean, you know. Um, she talks to angels. I think was written when he was like sixteen years old or something like that. Uh, yeah. You know, he's had different life experiences, and 
uh, different musical, um, you know, influences. And we also need to note this is coming off the Jimmy Page tour and that live album. And so, um, I think you can hear some Jimmy Page influence as far as like really big guitars, uh, in this one, as far, you know, really loud upfront guitars. Yeah. I mean, that's, you definitely hear the, an influence, not like a, a copying. It's just all that time on the road with Jimmy Page and, and absorbing his, his style, you know, and playing it. It's just, it's naturally going to come into your own music. Yeah, there's no um, way that wouldn't influence them. No, and then, you know, they got criticism for that. They And, you know, I remember, I can't remember, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, I remember, you know, one review had said, you know, it's like you can see the Jimmy Page influence, but they don't do it as good. I don't think, I don't even think they were consciously trying to do that. Uh, I think it just turned out that way from doing that whole tour. I get so frustrated with reviews of the Black Crows. First of all, every one of them is going to say, they remind you of the faces, every one mm-hmm. of them. And I feel like that's just lazy, lazy journalism. Um, sure. Those first two records, really the first one for sure. You can hear a lot of faces influence, but I mean, from that point on, that's just, that's just laziness. I mean, they became their own. I, I think on Amorica and three snakes, they became their own, their own entity. Um, that, that took a bunch of different styles and put them together and really made it their own thing. And, I just get so frustrated when I when I read that, and then you know I was sitting here last night and I stayed up really late reading reviews of lines, and almost every one of them, it was harping on the fact that they were just done touring with Jimmy Page and he influenced it. Which, to be fair, I just brought that up as well. But it just seems like this band, more so than almost any other band, there gets to be a narrative of them being a knockoff or a ripoff of other artists, and it's just brought up every time you see a review of any of their albums. Yeah, it's 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 lazy journalism as far as I'm concerned because, okay, when you listen to the Black Crows, yes, you're going to hear elements of the faces, elements of the stones, elements of humble pie. There's so many other things in there. I mean, to me, it, there are guys that took their, you know, rather good taste and blended it up and then added their own piece to it. And I I don't I don't at the time, especially like around the time of Shaky Moneymaker and and Southern Harmony, nobody else was showing those influences. So I don't see that as a bad thing. It was keeping, you know, good music alive, you know? And it was, it was not grunge. It wasn't hair metal. It sure wasn't pop. Um, they were kind of in their own, in their own lane for the most part. Yeah. And they don't, they never get the credit that they deserve for that. I think even to this day. No, uh-uh. It's it's still just uh, a lot of people think they just made that first album and quit, you know, quit making new music, which is very frustrating. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's a funny thing too because the album is produced. I'm talking about lines, um, produced by such a well-known producer that had you know a, a list of credits as long as your arm, and and you know, even that's not addressed as much as it should be. And that was Don was. I mean, that guy worked with. I was going over a list of his uh, 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 credits, and you know, uh, I knew him that he had worked with the Stones, of course. Le- you know, later day Stones, starting with Voodoo Lounge, I think. Leon Russell and John uh, Elton John when they did that Union record, and uh, you know, they did so many things I was going through that he was a part of. It's, it's, you know, that's another piece of the puzzle that I think really contributed well to the album. Yeah, I have, I have his like selected discography here. Let's just go through some of them. 
Um, let's see the B-52s, Michael McDonald, Iggy Pop, Bob Dylan, Elton John, Bonnie Raitt, uh, Bob Seger, Ringo Starr, Glenn Fry, Roy Orbison, Willie Nelson, uh, the Stones, um, I mean, Joe Cocker, Travis Tritt, Paul Westerberg. So, he and I think could, he did uh, Greg Allman's last record, too. Let's see. I think he did, too. Um, so, he he didn't stay in one lane. He was all over the place. Yeah, and that's that, to me, is, it makes it interesting. I mean, a guy that, uh, you know, produces such a varied list of artists, you know, it's it, that's that's bringing something to the table and make it, it, it helped make the album unique. I've always been very big on, you know, I remember um, uh, the prime example of this would be uh, with Pearl Jam when they transitioned from 10 to verse to Vitology. Like there was such a, a, a backlash in a way because pe- people weren't getting 10 over and over again. And I much prefer a band to try something different and fall flat on their face than just keep chucking out the same album every time, you know? The only band that I can think of that puts out the same album over and over again, it's always good, is ACDC. Right. I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> They're the only ones that can get away with that, man. You know? Right. You've got to have Rock and Roll, Hell, or Damnation in, yeah. in 10, 10 to 20% of the songs on the album. And it's all basically a Chuck Berry riff over and over again. But yeah, they're one of the only ones that can do it. And the, the Crows, uh, they definitely evolved. You almost get the feeling that Moneymaker at times really wasn't them. It's it to me. It sounds like a band learning their way, and you know they had some some massive hits on there. There's some great songs on there, but it doesn't. They don't for I don't for lack of a better term, they don't sound comfortable on that record. You know what I mean? They don't, and it's kind of surprising. I was listening to uh, doing research for this last night. There was a podcast with a Chad Smith of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and yes. he he had uh, Rich on. It was during Magpie's last tour, and. Apparently, whoever was opening for the Chili Peppers refused to open for them in Atlanta because they thought they they were from Atlanta and thought they were too big. And so Rick Rubin stepped in and said, I have this band, Mr. Crow's Garden. And uh, Chad Smith said he was sitting up in the balcony watching them and going, this is awesome. These guys are really going to be big, which is interesting because if you listen to Gorman or any of them talk about that time frame, they didn't think they were a good band then. And didn't think they, you know, didn't think that their songs were good. And, you know, here's Chad Smith, you know, in 89, the, the Chili Peppers are, are pretty big then, not as big as they're going to be. And he said, you know, I saw it from the beginning. Yeah, I, I actually heard that uh, same show because they broadcast it on uh, Sirius XM as well. And, um, yeah, there was a lot of love from Chad towards, uh, towards Rich. And that, that's a pretty amazing thing. It's funny how they didn't regard themselves too highly. Uh, you know, behind the scenes around that first record. But you can see from the uh, Shake Your Moneymaker tour, I mean, they toured, uh, was a year and a half on that thing? And by the time they get to Southern Harmony, it's a completely different feel. Those are guys that are seasoned at that point. And, uh, and didn't they just, they they went straight from the tour into their studio for Southern Harmony, if I remember correctly? Pretty much, yeah. In like 13 days? Uh, yeah, it was a quick. It was a quick record. They had been writing songs, you know. And... Yeah, well, that uh, th- that's just one of the. It's one of the all time great albums, and the fact that it didn't take that long um, just shows that they were they were in peak performing condition at that point. Yeah, that was uh, you know, it's it's a, it's an unbelievable thing when you something like that happens and you capture it on tape and it's it's there for the ages. You know, I think that's a record that people 
will will keep discovering, you know, as generations progress, you know, it's not going away. If I have any say so, that that'll be the case. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and by by the time they got to lions, you know, they're what was it they said in uh, Spinal Tap? Their appeal had become more selective. You know, right. <laughs> right. But uh, you know, it, it, they were. You know, they they had. They weren't in the mainstream at that point, but they they had a huge fan base from all the touring. And then the people that are really into the Crows, as you know, uh, people like ourselves are really into them. So, you know, they always had support. Um, well, and they had kind of a Spinal Tap moment in, instead of going through drummers, they were going through bass players at a record pace at this point. Yeah, I mean, going into the studio for Lions, they didn't have one. They had... Rich Robinson. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, there was a, a, a some kind of... Uh, incident with uh sven on the uh jimmy page tour and then they brought in um more of a session guy uh greg Razab, and um it was between from what i read it was between him and andy hess who andy hess later came in for the lions tour but they chose that guy greg because he was uh he had more touring experience and, yeah, and he um, and he was more of a blues player i believe played with a lot of blues bands yeah, I think he's with John Mayall right now, as a matter of fact. I tried to go back and find – there was an interview I had read with him at one point, and I couldn't find it again when I was preparing for the, the episode today, but uh, where he really had a, a distaste for Robinson Brothers. And, you know, there was a, it was a, that was not an amicable split. You know? No, uh, it doesn't sound like it. And then, you know, Sven was airbrushed out of the Live at the Greek album with Jimmy Page. I guess they were yeah. still ticked off at him, uh, which is strange because he goes back uh, before Steve Gorman came into the, the picture with uh, at least with Chris, with at least with Chris, right? With or he was in Marry My Hope. And Chris wasn't in that, was he? No, but I think they shared a house when they were you know all up and coming. I think that's that's the connection there, and um, so it makes sense how he ended up in the band. Um, yeah, that is kind of I don't I never liked the fact that because it. There, if you remember, there were two versions of that uh, Live at the Greek. There was the one that came out on the musicmaker.com, which doesn't exist anymore. And then they later released it you know, through a, a label. And the Music Maker one has Sven in that picture. And the, the later release airbrushed him out. God, you, I thought that was kind of... I mean, he was still in the band. I mean, why, why pretend he wasn't there? You know, It must have been a bad thing at the time. You know? Right. And those bonus tracks, though, that Andy Hess is all knows, the... Um, in the light, and uh, I forget the other song. Actually, that came out on Record Store Day a couple of years ago. But yeah, they had put Andy played on those. So yeah, they go into the studio. We don't have a bass player. Rich is like, I'll do it. Um, and then I think Don was played bass at least on one song that I saw. Yeah, yeah, they kind of split it up with Rich doing the bulk of it. I mean, but the, there are so many great songs on that album. So many songs that I, you know, because I went back and and listened to it properly. Because I had I had um, created a version of, of the album where I redid the track order and, and took out some tracks and put in some of the B-sides and things. So for years, I listened to it that way. So then I, I actually went back and took the, the actual original album and listened to it. And it's really... One thing I noticed that I ne- never quite stood out to me was it's it's one... If you listen to it start to finish, it's, it's almost like one straight song in a way. There's no... Everything. They all seeg into each other, you know? Yeah. Which uh, I had forgotten about that because um, I kind of ha- I I very rarely now listen to Crow's albums 
as an actual album, except for the ones I have on vinyl, which lines is a hard one to get. Uh, so, you know, I have a Spotify playlist or whatever that just has all the Crow songs on it. And so for this, I've listened to it probably three or four times uh, beginning to end to prepare for this. And you're right. I had that in my notes. It's every song just kind of goes right into the next one. And I, I feel like it created a situation where um, really taking a song out of that puzzle affects the statement. And I, I, I ultimately, I think I was wrong for, for trying to rearrange it myself, you know, and thinking I was doing better because it really does, it does stand as a, as a, a cohesive album and you don't see albums too much anymore. It's more just a, 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 a collection of songs because, you know, with, with downloading and things like that, you know, nobody does an album anymore. No. And, um, I even saw where Joe Perry said, Aerosmith, probably if we do anything, I'll just release like one or two songs because like nobody wants to hear an album, which that's unfortunate. It is. It's a sad case of affairs. And I, and I never heard Joe Perry say that, but it's true of a lot of other artists have the same sentiment. And, you know, my hat is off to, to guys that still try to put out albums, you know, because there's there, it, an album is important. It's a it's an artistic statement, you know, and. Uh, and it's it's you know it, to take that to take that out of the equation really hurts music I think in more ways than is immediately obvious. Uh, I compl- I'm in complete agreement with you. So starting off, the Lions statement is we had spoken about it on our best uh, in concert opening tunes is uh, Midnight from the Inside Out, which is I still think is a fantastic tune, a fantastic riff. I like the way it starts on the record in that it's a false start. And I always that really gives it kind of a a live in the studio kind of feel to me. You have to wonder was that intentional or is that just a cut that they had and thought it would sound cool? Yeah, I don't. I it's it's hard to say. I one thing I read recently, in, in, again in preparing for the episode, that I I wasn't quite aware of is a lot of the stuff on the album was recorded during, um, like a like a dry run through of all the songs. And, you know, Don was suggested that they use a lot of those takes as the final takes because they were so good, which might account for that false start on that. You know, they're not thinking they were going to use that as the uh, the final take, you know. Yeah, I thought it was pretty ballsy to put that on there, especially as you know, that's the first thing that you hear is a sour note, which I think I think it sounds good. But I could see how it might turn um, some people off. I think one of the problems with this song from the way pe- some people view it is it suffers from. The Crows put out such good songs as album openers, you know, Under the Mountain, Gone, Sting Me, you know, um, Goodbye Dogs of Revolution. I love that song. And so I feel like a lot of people, when they start thinking about, oh, the great openings to Crows albums, they don't consider this song, which, I mean, if it were on any other, you know, any other band did this, did this song, and that was the opening song on the album, people would really like it. I love it, and I was reading a lot last night, a lot of hate that people have for it, thinks it's disjointed, and, you know, I just I just think it's a great rock song. It's a heavy song. Uh, obviously, the lyrical content's heavy, but it's probably one of the last, you know, really heavy songs they would record and, uh, and mix, in my opinion, uh, as a band, um, and I just, uh, it's, there are days where I would tell you it's a top 10 Crow song for me depending on the day. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I remember one criticism of it um, was the, the center section um, 
there's like um, audio of like it sounds like kids, you know, playing or something like that, you know, and people were criticizing things like that. There was a lot of elements like that throughout the album, but I remember that coming up. But really, that section, as much as it may superficially seem like it's it's lacking a, some kind of guitar solo or something. Gorman is like an animal during that section. Mm-hmm. And you don't really, I didn't realize that until um, there was a program on HBO uh, that was called Reverb that they would have, you know, like once a week or something like that. And the Black Crows had an episode of that and they opened, it was from that tour. So they opened with that song and you see Steve playing that center section. And it's like, that's the solo right there, you know? <laughs> and I, I always appreciated it for that. I can't ever listen to it without seeing that in my mind now. That uh, version that's on that show, that's not a good look for Chris with the uh, pigtails. Yeah, that was uh, – and there's also a uh, um, a documentary thing I have that was uh, – there was a channel that used to be called Much Music. It was, a Cana- it was mm-hmm. like Canadians MTV, you know, and um, they had a, a documentary, like the story of the Black Crows or something like that. It must have been recorded like backstage at that thing because he's, he's wearing the – pigtails and stuff but oh. uh, and funny thing about that is also you can see a lot of animosity between the two of them during the interview um that yeah at this point i think things were at the well obviously they're gonna be at the breaking point at the end of this tour we'll talk about that later but uh i think they were both ready to go on their separate ways at that point yeah but uh which is sad and you know as fans you didn't really see the writing on the wall perhaps because the, the internet wasn't as prevalent and things like that, but you know, I, I still think if that had been the final go around in the last album, the last tour, you know, that was, it was a great tour and nobody ever talks about how great that tour was. They went back to changing up set lists and introducing cool, obscure songs. And it really did the fans right on that one, you know, and set a precedent for everything they did following. Second up on the uh, on the album is the, uh, the big point of contention for a lot of people, and it follows in that trend of second song being the single was uh, "Lickin." Now, what do you? Before I tell you what I think, what's your take right. on that on that track? So, I applaud them for trying to do something that sounds different um, with the what Rich is doing with the guitar. I guess he's just with that you know playing with the switch or whatever that's called that, that they do. I applaud that. Um, I think if you change the lyrics up on this, people's perception would change. I have, I have in my notes, if you told me this was a poison song, I would have been okay with it, but it wasn't. It was the black crows. It would have Um, been their best track. Yeah. It would have been a good poison song. I I just, the lyrics to me are, they just, I don't know. they, They do nothing for me. Um, and I feel like there's a couple of instances where they were trying to they were trying to get back on the radio uh, big time, and um, I, I'm all for you know artists making money and trying to sell as many albums as they can. But um, to me, this just felt like a cheap attempt, uh, attempt at that. Um, and I I listened to it to prepare for the uh, the show, but uh, this is one that I that I skip and. I don't think the Black Crows have very many misses, but this is one that I cat for me is a miss. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a funny thing. I always would skip over it too because I just it didn't resonate with me as much as some of the other tracks. But in going back and listening to the record for the for the episode, 
I obviously didn't skip because I just wanted to listen to everything. And I, I, I forgot how much I kind of like the the music. And it's you're right, it is a it is a lyric problem for me also. And I feel that that's a that's a theme that goes throughout any any issue I ever take with the album is lyrically, vocally and lyrically. And I, I just feel like Chris wasn't there for it. And that's where a lot of the problems are. I mean, that the riff that he plays on on Lickin' Rich is is um, yeah, he, he, like you were saying, he uses the switch. And what he's doing is he's got the volume turned down uh, for for one of the pickups and turned up on the other. So when you turn when you do the switch, it's going to a dead pickup. So then it's not picking up the sound. That's how you get that staccato kind of sound to it. <laughs> I always thought that was really cool, I, I, you know, and I, I thought it was a cool sound to it. But yeah, the the, the lyrics kind of leave a lot to, to be desired, for sure. But uh, and then it goes into another song that lyrically people take a lot of issue with, and that's uh, "Come On," which uh, musically I like, and um, but it's kind of like it's almost like they were trying to design a song to open a show with. Well. I kind of feel like it's 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 just generic in its in its lyrics, uh, which is not something they're known for doing. Um, and d- correct me if I'm wrong. Am I hearing this right? They part of this is one of the part of the riff of Pain and Eight, isn't it? Yeah, that's I read that too, and I could never identify it. So if it is, they I don't know which section they lifted from that, or if they lifted a, maybe altered it slightly. I could never hear it, and I, you know, I mean, a pain and eight is like I've heard that zillions of times, and uh, you know, I could never match it up. But that's what they say. Yeah. But don't you think this one, this one was written to be an arena rocker? Yeah, like I said, it's trying to like. It seems like something that's intended to, you know, get the crowd going or something. Which I mean, you know, I understand that's it's a good try, but again, it's just a lyrically kind of falls short. Um, and musically is all right, you know. Um, it's a skipper for me. Yeah, I mean, I don't really get back. It kind of goes from from uh, Midnight from the Inside Out to um, No Use Line for me. That's usually where I would pick it back up. And I like that song. It's a really cool riff from Rich, as are most on the album. It's a, He kind of has this very deep riff that uh, works with feedback. It, but it doesn't sound terrible. Like usually, feedback is not a good thing, you know. But it's it. I I, I always like that riff. It's it's to me on the whole album. He really kind of started experimenting with effects a lot more than he did prior, you know. Where he's he's using a, a you know rotating Leslie speaker to get a certain effect on the guitar sound and different kind of uh, pedals and things like that. Well, he was starting to evolve into the rich that he would become on a lot of his solo albums, I think. Yeah. Um, I love No Use Line. I think it's one of the most underrated songs in the Crows catalog. It doesn't get a lot of love. Um, I, I think it has some of the more straightforward lyrics that Chris has written. Um, I have on here, kind of like what you said, it's a classic sludgy rich riff. And also, uh, don't overlook uh, Ed's contribution to this. Yeah to this song. Um, I, you know, I don't know if it's been played since this tour, um, at all, uh, but it's, uh, it's unique sounding. Um, this was not them 
this was this really was a case of them not making something uh, that they have done uh, in the past, um, and just a, a real straightforward song as far as lyrically, and then some really unique work by Rich and Ed on that. And uh, this is one I'm like you when I'm, if I'm listening to it, I go midnight straight to No Use Line. Yeah, I mean it's it's a fantastic tune, and I don't it it didn't get a lot of play on the tour either you know it didn't show up that often and uh i would think it's not an easy one for them to play yeah i which i i kind of got that impression about quite a few of the songs on the album too which is maybe why they didn't go over in concert as 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 well as they should have but um you know and then of course it goes into um losing my mind which is a fantastic track and the only reason i ever switched it out on my own version of the the album that i put together is at, at one point i had someone had sent me it was a, a a sampler for v2 records and two tracks on it were from lions but it was from before lions came out so they were mixed differently whereas losing my mind on the on the record the the acoustic is up in the mix this other version that i i had the electric is more up in the mix <laughs> Actually, and it doesn't fade out at the end. It goes, you know, to a, a, a you know a, a definite ending. There's no fade out. And it, it was always a lot cooler. Than I really like this track a lot. I don't. I mean, what's your take on it? Well, it's the it's the second track that I can think of that features Rich on lead vocals for a little bit after yes. a, "How Much for Your Wings," and you know, I'm not knocking Rich's voice, but his voice has come a long way since then. And yeah. you know, it, his voice here it's very I, I, I like it, but you can tell that it's not a trained voice at that point, um, and kind of has a, a little bit of a weakness to it at times. Um, the lyrics to this song really get to me at times because Chris is, you know, he's singing about, uh, uh, you know, he's in love with somebody and they're, they're, they're treating him bad or, or it's a bad situation to be in, but he still loves them. is going to stay with them, even though it's making him lose his mind. Uh, and I also have a note on here. I thought whatever effect Rich is playing through on this, I don't know if it's a flanger or, or what it is. Sounds really cool to me. Yeah. And that's, on that alternate version, that's brought more to the forefront, which makes it even even cooler. And the funny thing about that alternate version, too, is because you had mentioned Rich's vocal. On that alternate one, his voice is put through some kind of effect, I guess maybe to hide the fact that it's not as trained a voice. So, But I liked it without the effect. There's like there's elements of each mix that I kind of like, which is, you know. Um, I, when I first heard that, when I you know, because I, I used to, I still do it this way, but I, I went record when release day comes and I go and buy the album right in the car and I take a, I take a ride and I listen to the album all the way through, you know, whatever album it happens to be. And the first thing I remember thinking about that though, is to me, and, and it kind of grew on me over time, but the acoustic guitar sounds almost like slightly out of tune in a way. 
but it works. It does. You know, it's not at a tune where you're like, I can't listen to this. You know, it's it's it's, it's not a thing. Now that you say that, that makes sense. I don't guess I ever thought about it that way. Um, and it and it didn't get a lot of love live either. I know they played it, but not much. Yeah, I mean, very few, very few songs, from what I remember, were played on the Lions tour itself, and then a, a very small number survived. You know, after that, um, you know, the only one I can remember getting like real consistent play after that is um, Soul Singing. You know, and then the Magpie kind of revived Lay It All on Me, but. But, uh, you know, that does uh, does bring us to the next song that, uh, you know, people are ready to uh, burn the albums for was uh, Ozone Mama. What do you uh, what's your uh, take on this bad boy? All right. I have here cool, funky groove. But the lyrics it certainly is the lyrics kill it for me. The lyrics are just awful. No other way to put it. It's and it's not even like. Because I get like what what Chris was going for, and that's if you listen to songs of that genre, the lyrics are often sometimes brought down to very simple. It's to me, it was the fact that he adds y'all to the end of every line. It sounds I don't know, it just sounds silly. I don't know. <laughs> it's, and I'm not believe me, I, I'm not a songwriter at their level by any stretch of the imagination. But just hearing it, it just kind of put me off, you know. But musically, like you had said, it's not. It's a it's a really cool song and he would go on to revisit that style on the the first new earth mud album with ride yes you know and he kind of went through this period where he they kind of fancied them himself a uh uh you know rastafarian i guess because they did uh you know kinky reggae and they did Mm -hmm. uh, pimper's paradise all about this is after three snakes but uh so definitely um reggae and 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 that kind of funk like ozomama were not something that was foreign to him. No, definitely not. And the shame of, of Ozo Mama not being a, uh, a fan favorite is uh, he has one of his best harmonica runs on that thing. And it's, it, it's a shame that it's, it's, you know, involved in a song that uh, doesn't get a lot of attention because it, it's such a good, that portion of the song is great. You know? Yeah. Always, always skip time when that one pops up. I, I'd like to say that I don't uh, skip it because I uh, I try to be be fair to everything, and I, I've said it before, and I, uh, it's absolutely true. I I genuinely don't dislike any of their songs. There's just ones that I you know revert to more often. You know, I really don't. I've never heard something be like that is a terrible song. I will never listen to it again. You know, I always find something in there. So that's why I like them so much. I always find something in their songs to enjoy. Well, it has a cool groove. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, the the other song that was on that uh, sampler that I got was uh, so it was the first one of the first songs off the album I heard was "Greasy Grass River," and um, you know actually so that one actually did uh, make it to future set lists after the Lions tour too. That is true. They would open a couple of times with that, but they kind of did later an improvement on the song to me as they kind of did this slow build of an intro. I don't know if you remember this. Um, and it would build into the, the regular song.
I don't. I, I I always liked the song. It was. Uh, it's one of the uh, the highlights of the album for me. Yeah, I have here a great fuzzed out intro that I instantly thought would make a great jam. So, yeah. and that's what they wind up doing. Um, some of the high points on it for me, I think some of the time signature changes are, are really cool. Um, and I think I have here, I think it would have fit in on three snakes in a morca just fine. Yeah, that actually, that wouldn't have been out of place there. It was more their traditional sound. I would I definitely agree with that. And it, um, it worked in concert really well. And, um, it was one of those things where in concert, I noticed a lot of those songs, Ed kind of did more with the live versions than necessarily the ones on the record. So it kind of gave him a little bit more. Well, and it's one of the songs from that album that got played with Mark, too. Yes. And I, I don't know about you, but when that when that 2005 <coughs> tour came to be, well, that first initial run of shows that turned into a tour, um, I was most excited about hearing Mark do things with songs that he wasn't originally a part of. I was very you know, eager to hear what he was going to do with them. And then more often than not, he really added a lot to them, you know, and uh, to, to the point where some of the stuff he added to them, you know, guys that took over after him used those parts that, you know, weren't on the original songs, you know, and right. that he added live. Yeah. He can just do no wrong. He can't. I'm <laughs> it'd be hard pressed for me to, to criticize Mark for it. I'll be honest with you. But, uh, but then that that track of uh, you know of course gives way to uh, probably probably what should have been the first single in my opinion, and the one that um, definitely um, went over best with the uh, fan base as a whole, and that's uh, soul singing. I have here possibly the last great Crows radio single that they that they wrote. Um, some of it was inspired by Kate Hudson. This when Chris had, had married Kate or they were dating. Um, and I, you know, it's very cool because Rich played like a metallic body, bodied electric guitar to get some of that sound. And, uh, if you ever see them in concert, whenever that guitar comes out, you know, what's coming, uh, right. it's going to be, uh, soul singing. And I did read that like the riff had been around for a while. Rich had had that. And then Chris added some lyrics to it. Um, and, uh, Craig Ross from, uh, Lenny Kravitz's band played guitar on this. I did not know that until last night. I did not. Uh, I was not aware of that either, and uh, I knew he was on the record in some facet, but I was never quite sure which which tracks he ended up on. But uh, he's a fantastic guitar player. He kind of gets buried in, you know, Lenny Kravitz, if uh, so to speak. You know, who's kind of fancies himself to be larger than life sometimes. You but know, if you and, uh, if you think about how some of those Kravitz albums sounded around this time, that sound he would fit right into that with if he was playing on greasy grass river. Oh yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. And, uh, so one of my, one of my favorite crows memories revolves around this song. So I saw them, um, at the tabernacle in Atlanta on that say goodbye to the bad guys tour song back to back nights. And it was when they were doing the, um, uh, you know, 90 minute acoustic, 90 minute electric set. Right. And, you could just tell from the onset on this one that Chris was really feeling it and the rest of the band was feeling it. And I'll have to dig it up. I have it on tape somewhere. Uh, you know, it, it plays, and right when it gets to, let's see, or whatever, when it gets to the part where they're going to break down, he, I guess they've sang part of the first verse, and then the whole band is going to kick in. 
Chris did something that's just very uncharacteristic of him, and you can hear it on the um, uh, on the bootleg. He was holding the microphone stand, and it got to that part where it's just silence for about half a second. He slams the microphone down so loud that you can pick it up on the uh, on the bootlegs. And I remember like when he did that, like Luther and Rich looking at him, and like you know, at first I thought he was really mad about something but then i was you know but then i read an interview with luther or whatever he was talking about that night that they were just on fire and chris had just had so much amped up energy that's what he had to do it was very unchris like to uh i mean he slammed it down so loud uh you can definitely hear it but and it was just really cool because i was like well this is about to be a really special special night and that's that's uh that's a song that regardless of who's in the band they always play it and it's gonna get the biggest reaction from casual fans for any song that's not on the first two albums. Yeah. Cause I feel like that's the song that, uh, you know, if you're just kind of loosely involved with the band, you're going to know that one. Cause it did get a lot of play and, and it is a, it's a song that fits into their style very well, you know? So I always liked, and I first saw this on the, uh, the Oh, Oh five, Oh six run, particularly on Oh six. Um, and they, they haven't done it since, but Rich and Mark worked out this section in the middle that they turned into this long jam. Mm-hmm. That, it was awesome. I mean, it, it was unbelievably good. And I, I, I would look forward to that. And then once, uh, once Mark left the band again in 06, after that, they didn't attempt it. And then subsequently doing it in the Magpie, they don't do that jam, but it was so great. And it, it actually allowed me to hear the what rich is playing behind the solo on the studio track which is a cool little you know riff and uh you know kind of stretch that out and it was that was really cool i remember that on those 0506 uh uh that tour this yeah this there this one and then uh, we'll get to it in a minute i think mark added a lot to cypress tree uh when they played it but yeah this one i remember that and it was a really cool Matter of fact, when I get through tonight, I'm gonna have to go pull up one of those shows and and listen to it because it, it was really really cool and almost it almost has like a Middle Eastern feel to it at times. Uh, but it, the song just makes me happy. It makes me feel good. Like I, I I'm a I'm addicted to making Spotify playlists. By the way, uh, I put a corresponding uh, playlist up every week uh, for songs that we talk about. So this one is just gonna be the Lions album, but. Uh, <laughs> I'm addicted to making Spotify playlists and like I, I had surgery a couple of months ago and, and was kind of homebound for a couple of weeks and just got stir crazy and started making Spotify playlists. And like I made one called spring is in the air, which, you know, it's, it was obviously springtime. And like whenever I make a song, a, a playlist for the spring or the summer, soul singing is on every one of them. Cause it just feels like something that you roll your windows down, put the sunroof back. It's 90 degrees outside and you're driving down the road. Listen to this. It just makes you feel good. It absolutely does. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of doing the Spotify playlist myself. It's kind of like, uh, it harkens back to making a mixtape or something, you know, like, uh, and I used to be obsessed with making mixtapes. So it is much easier. Spotify <laughs> much quicker. That's for sure. Yes, definitely. Um, but you know, the the next track is a track that I think is is uh, an absolutely beautiful track, and it doesn't. It's another one of those ones that kind of gets forgotten in their in their lore, and that's uh, a miracle to me. 
such a great uh, such a great track and the solo that Rich plays on it is fantastically un, you know understated. Does a lot of nice keyboard work on it. It's just, it's a really overall, very cohesive, very gentle song that I I, I always come back to. I've, I I liked it. Oh man, I'm in complete agreement with you, and I th- honestly think it's one of Robinson's Chris Robinson one of his best vocal performances. He emotes so well on this song, especially like the line you know it starts out. Tell me why have you been crying? The way yeah. he sings it, I mean it just oh it's just. It's just really, really good. Tell me why have you been crying? Why won't you look me in the eye? Well, I'm just trying to help you. And I just need to know why. One of their better ballads, if not, you know, one of their top two or three. Uh, I did read that Kate Hudson, at least to some degree, inspired part of it. Um, and uh, I'll admit, though, when this album came out, I did not like this song. And it wasn't until I heard it on the live album, the official live album from this mm. tour, that it hit me uh, just how good it was. And it, like you said, there's some subtle playing uh that in the background that really adds to the song like we were talking last week sometimes it's what you don't play and right. this this song is a great example of what you don't play they just let that melody carry them uh, uh ed and rich um and it's some great guitar work uh by rich uh you would see it get busted out every now and then uh after this tour uh but uh i think it's just from a vocal standpoint it's one of chris's best songs yeah, and, and to me, it was one of those songs that if you were fortunate enough to be there on a night they broke it out, it was just as good as getting you know, one of the other obscure songs that you, you hoped for. I, I, I was always a big fan of it. Actually, on the, the solo that Rich does, there's, a, there's an effect that he has on the guitar which makes it, it's like a delay effect. So he, whatever he plays, it 
echoes like a, a second or two later. I always thought that was so cool because initially when you hear that that effect, and he's done it on a lot of things since then, solo stuff and, and what have you, but it's offsetting at first because you think it, it doesn't sound right, but it really is a cool effect once you once your mind wraps itself around that it's it's off time a little bit, you know? He's a master at that. And a- adding those little effects uh, to, you know, that necessarily the first time you hear him, you don't appreciate it, but uh, he, he's one of those songwriters and guitar players. It may be a year after you've heard the song that you, you hear a part that uh, that you never picked up on and, and just realize what little ear candy he's given you. Yeah, and that's that's the beauty of this band. And I, I've said it before and I'll say it again, and not just this record, every record. It's it's the reason why you listen to Black Rose records so many times over and over is because they deliver something new every time. I mean, it's almost 20 years later we're talking about this record. And there's things when I played it back, getting ready for the uh, for the episode, I was like, wow, I never noticed that. That's fantastic. You know, and uh, it, that's that's the best musical gift you can be given as a as a as a listener, as far as I'm concerned. Great headphone listening too. Yes, I never and a lot of people have been big, uh, you know, are big into listening to stuff on headphones. I always do a lot of my listening, especially, uh, you know, as I get older while I'm doing other things. So, you know, to sit down and actually put on headphones is is hard. But I I was um, actually when I was when when I was cutting together the the last episode, I was listening to a lot of the riffs through headphones. So subsequently, I was listening to a lot of the songs through headphones and. I got to go start listening to these albums on headphones because there's some stuff in there that I, I, I have been missing out on. Crowology is the best Crow's song, Crow's album to listen to on headphones, in my opinion. There is so much going on on that that you don't necessarily hear listening to it through, you know, speakers in your room. Oh, I'm going to have to, that'll be the first one then because I'm definitely going back and doing like some headphones. She talks to, I think that's the definitive, for me, that's the definitive version of She Talks to Angels. Uh, and it's what they did with my morning song and uh, Sister Luck and uh, pretty much everything on there, even Girl from a Pawn Shop, which when I first heard they were going to put that on there, I was like, eh, I don't know, you know, because that electric solo by Mark adds so much to it, but they pull it off. But yeah, get a chance, throw in Crowology with a good pair of headphones and you're just, you're going to be amazed. Well, I will, uh, I will certainly heed your advice on that one because, uh, it's like I said, it's going to be a, an activity that's going to occupy much of my free time in the near future is listening <laughs> to these albums again on headphones. But um, in concert, the next song on the record, I, I got to hear I the first it's actually the first Black Crow show I went to was on this tour. It was at Radio City Music Hall, one of two or three shows they did um, not long after the record was released. Um and they played this tune. And I remember guy. I remember walking out of the venue, and there were guy, two guys standing on the street corner, and they were so excited about this song, and I, it was, it was great. I don't. Know, it's just something that always sticks out in my mind. And they were singing it on the street corner. It was young man, old man, and they were singing the main, you know, young man crazy, old man wise. That line. They just were singing it. And these guys were so happy. <laughs> I, was, I was happy for them that they got to hear it. You know. So, but what, I think I you- think it's a great tune. It's uh, it's one that if I if I were producing the album, I would I'd leave on the cutting cutting room floor. I like you saw him play it live on this tour. Um, whereas like I did have something good to say about uh, Ozone Mama, the cool funky groove. I don't know, man. Mm. 
this one just never has it just never has done it for me and i hate to be the guy that doesn't like a song because like a lot of people on the message boards don't like the song uh Mm -hmm. but this is one where i'm just gonna have to take that chance uh i just i just it just never has done anything for me that's cool that you like it though Yeah. yeah Oh, it's you know, and that's the that's ultimately the best thing about music, really, is you know, something that that's why I don't really, and I, and it's it's ironic to say because I kind of was one for a little while, but I really don't read reviews anymore because it's so subjective that uh, anything you say really doesn't mean anything to somebody else because uh, they're going to hear it and take it in in a completely different way than you because they're a different person, they've had different experiences, something that resonates with them lyrically or musically might not resonate with you and it's you know that's the that's a, that's what it's all about you and know? it may take you a long time to to pick up on it that's happened with me with um i've started listening to the cure a lot in the last couple of weeks uh me too I, I, yeah i had a friend that was like you know you you'd, you got to get into the cure and i'd listen to him and it's just like ah it doesn't do anything for me and then one night it just clicked with me and i mean that same thing happened to me though with miracle to me i didn't like it at first and it wasn't until i heard it on the uh that live album that I liked it. And now, I mean, I, I think it's one of their, one of their top ballads. So who knows, maybe one day I'll, I'll come on here and be like, you know, Ian, young man, old man, it just does it for me now. I, you know, what it is for me is, is, I mean, Steve's laying down like a real solid, you know, drum beat on that. But the, the riff that Rich plays, like he'll play the main riff and then he, he's definitely hitting. And I, I wish I had the, a little bit more knowledge, but he's hitting a pedal, which makes the, it almost like, had this odd effect on the last note and it, uh, it, it to me that riff is just it's badass I, I i really like it but you know it's definitely out of characteristic for them in a way so i can i can get why it doesn't appeal to everybody but i you know speaking of not appealing to everybody see i thought you would have been more of the the mindset you are on young man old man that, for cosmic friend because that one gets a lot of heat too um I don't hate it. I, I I have on here. The song has its moments. Um, I think this kind of foreshadowed lyrically where Chris was going to go. Um, at least with some of the uh, stuff on um, in Chris Robinson Brotherhood. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think some of the guitar work by Rich is really interesting. Kind of a cool riff. Uh, I meant to. Ask, I was going to ask you who do, who's that talking on there? Do you think that's Gorman or is that Ed? He's like, I'll get you back next time, and he's like, cool. I always thought it was Rich. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I thought I, I always assumed uh, that that was Rich. See, but, I always uh, thought it was Gorman until today when I was listening to it. And I said, you know what? That may have been Ed. Uh, it could have been Ed because it's a very deep voice. Just it's the way he says "cool" that makes me think it's Rich because I I've heard Rich say "cool" many many times. So it's you know it's a certain thing. I don't know. It could be either one, really. Yeah, but, th- this uh, is this is a this is a polarizing song uh, for sure. Like I said, I don't. I, I don't hate it. Um, I'm not going to skip it if it comes on. So that that uh, that should tell you something. If you if you ever got into and I never hugely got into this stuff, but I listened to it enough to to make the comparison at least is like um, early psychedelic stuff, like early Floyd things like that has elements in it that that song that Cosmic Friend has in it too. So and I know they're big fans of that that era of right. Pink Floyd and that era of music, especially Chris and, you know, to, to a degree rich as well. And so that's why I always kind of appreciated it. Cause I liked stuff from that psychedelic era. Um, the riff does get a little repetitive at times, but he does offset it 
by changing it up every like third one, he'll play something slightly different. I I, I always liked it. Got played a lot on that tour, and it would get busted out sparingly uh, in the coming years. Every now and then, you would see it, but not a lot. It's hard because depending on the venue too, I would imagine if it's a larger venue, there's a lot of there's a lot of open space in that song, so it really would kind of just it couldn't fill a room as much. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. uh, so it, it definitely is. Uh, you got to break it out sparingly, I would imagine. But uh, you had mentioned before the next track, um, and it's always been a a big favorite for me musically, lyrically. And that's uh, Cypress Tree. Well, I think of, I think there? of all the songs from the non-Ford era that they played with Mark. This is the one he added the most to it. Um, the The lead that he plays at the intro, uh, I always thought really added a lot to the song. I like everything about this song, but I don't really like the chorus. Uh, but everything else, I love the uh, the solo on it. Uh, the intro, I love the verses. There's something about, there's something about the chorus that just, I mean, I don't hate it, but I, I, I'm, you know, I'm five out of ten on it. And so, can you explain to me exactly what the song is about? I, I never had. It may be something simple that I'm not picking up on, um, but I, I've never like been able to zero in completely on what the song is about. I. Can't I? <laughs> I have no idea. It's uh, it's one of those. To me, it was always one of those criticisms, you know. Like uh, the lyrics sound cool, but if you think about it, what is he saying, you know? But it doesn't. It's it's one of those things that never mattered. I always just. Uh, you know, I'm embarrassed to say I have no idea. I just. Uh, it's it's almost like the um, the vibe or the emotion of it like transcends whatever he's saying because it's just so emotive, you know. Did you enjoy it when Mark would play on it? I did. I haven't. I, I I'm having trouble right now bringing back to you know mind. I'll have to go back and listen. But uh, I do remember. I remember liking everything that he added to any of those songs. I always thought he brought something to the table. It's funny you mentioned the that you don't like the chorus quite as much because a lot of people uh, I remember at the time and even you know since were critical of it because they said it sounded just like No Speak No Slave. It was a similar type of guitar run. Right, and it's like, but yeah, it kind of is, but that doesn't mean it's the same. Sometimes certain things, you know, rear their head, you know, because it's in the style of that player. I never saw it as a detriment to the song or anything. Now that you say that, I, I can I can hear it. I mean, I, I know what people are saying. I've never have ever thought about that. Yeah, that was uh, you know I used to spend a lot of time on those old message boards, uh, hallucination nation, and and what have you, debating this album with people, and uh, that was like you know two thousand two two thousand three. It was close to the release, so people have mellowed on it now. I think a bit, and hopefully this us talking about it might inspire some people to. Uh, to go back and revisit it and maybe find something they enjoy that they didn't before. But it's, it's not, it's not as bad as it gets a bad rap. It does. And uh, perhaps the, what I think now, and I didn't think this at the time, but going back and, and listening to it and hearing it live, uh, not only with the crows, but with magpie as well is I think the strongest album on the song, uh, the strongest song on the album, uh, rather, um, is laid all on me the one that closes it out i really think it's 
it's one of those songs like like I described um, my morning song. It's got like a piece of everything that the band is about, really. And Rich Robinson playing the piano instead of Eddie Harsh. I know. I didn't know that till recently too. That that was him uh, until he played it on um, one of his solo shows that I saw in uh, in New York City, this place called City Winery. And he goes walking over to the piano and he starts playing that. And I, I had I had no idea, you know. And it's great. Uh, a great a great song to close out an album. I'm always always appreciate bands that have the guts to put a great song uh, to close out an album. I. You know, the, for the Crows, the best instance of it is obviously descending. But um, mm. I love that they put. I know a lot of people knock it, but I love the fact that they put "Time to Tell" at the end of Southern Harmony because I feel like that whole album is just wide open, and there's really no let up. And it's kind of like, hey, we're just we've just you know we've put you through the ringer. We're just going to let you down easy with uh, "Time to Tell." But uh, man, this one live really cooks, especially that outro guitar solo If I'm not mistaken, with Mark, uh, but it it got brought back a decent amount in the Luther era, and uh, I think mm. in the Jackie Green era, uh, I think the song is even better live than it is, you know, on the album, and I love it on the album. You're, you know, you're 100 percent right on that because that that outro part, first of all, the build up to it is great, but it's it's made to have like a a back and forth between two guitarists, you know, two like soloing uh, against each other. And live is really the only spot where you have that happen because, you know, I believe studio was primarily just rich. So, you know, you're definitely right. I mean, it really, it's a safe thing to say about a lot of their songs that they, they thrive a lot more in the live setting. But that one in particular is definitely, you know. 
Do you ever wonder? Do, do you ever wonder how much Audley actually played on this? I do, and I don't think, from what I understood, and and from what it sounds like to me, I think they intentionally, you know, reserved uh, Audley on the album because because Rich was interested in the songs breathing a bit, you know, um, which they do, and um, you know, really Audley, he wasn't on by your side. And um, you know, he, so and he very he, he didn't appear much on that album. I don't think either. And I'm okay with that. I really am. I mean, he did his he did his bit live, and that was great. You know. Yeah the only the only album he really uh, was there for and toured for, and uh, you know when they called it a day at the end of this tour, which you know there's kind of the, I think they're in Boston. It's kind of the famous show where they do the go come back for the encore, and Gorman has shaved his head. Mm-hmm. Uh, in between the last song and the encore, and they call it quits after that for four years. Yeah, and it, I I don't think it was that long after the uh, the performance too that they did. I mean, it was it was, and it, it's it's funny to me because you know, as problematic as that live album is in a lot of ways, it's it's the document of that last show, and no, going back and listening to it, knowing that they were a band that was falling that falls apart right afterwards it's a great performance. You know what I mean? It's that they don't show any signs of phoning it in or, or, you know, that disinterest. It really, it, it's a great show. It is. And they really didn't, I can't think of too many times they really phone, phoned it in. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, they were always very professional in that. And one of the things we haven't mentioned yet though, is we have a really cool giveaway, uh, this week. So, yes. um, we're we're on iTunes now, which is awesome. Our downloads have increased exponentially since we got put on uh, iTunes. Uh, so, real quick, here's the contest. Uh, we want you to go to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating, and then write a review for us. And then, Ian, did we decide we're going to do it on Twitter? Is that right? Yes, because we did Facebook last time, so we'll give the Twitter folks a chance this time. All right, so what you're going to do is, uh, if you're nice enough leave us a five-star rating and then type up a review on the iTunes website for us and then screenshot that and then send it to us on Twitter at state of America. And if you aren't following us on Twitter, go ahead and follow us. And what we're going to do is we're going to compile a list of all of the people that send us that. And we're going to pick a winner. And Ian, why don't you tell everybody what you're going to send them in the mail since you're the one that found it? Yes. I managed to get my hands on, um, a, Brand new CD copy of uh, the Lions album, which is from when it was originally released, because it has the uh, "By the Crows Get the Shows" uh, hype sticker on the on the jacket still. So um, you know, for anybody that listens to this is interested and wants to give the album another shot, maybe they got rid of it or never never got a hold of it in the first place. Um, now's your chance. They were on the cutting edge of doing that. Yes, I, I I was thinking about that at the time, and they were really one of the it's it's almost like a uh, an, a primitive early version of the of the nugs.net kind of th- situation where you you download and shows right as they you know not long after they happen you know so just leave us a review on iTunes screenshot it because it takes iTunes a while to actually put that review up and mm-hmm. one of the reasons the reviews and the ratings are so important is when people go searching for music uh and uh, let's say you listen to, I don't know, uh, 
NPR's All Songs Considered, uh, and you go and leave us a review and a rating, what iTunes starts doing is goes, oh, there's two or three people that listen to All Songs Considered that listen to this. So when people find our, our uh, podcast, it'll also, or find like the NPR podcast, it'll suggest, hey, people uh, that listen to this also listen to State of America. So the more we get that, the more we get built into their system of recommend, recommending us to people. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm one that a lot of times when I'm thinking about subscribing to a podcast, I pull it up on uh, iTunes and see, you know, how many ratings it have. What do you know? What are people saying about it? So, as many of those we can get, uh, we would love. And this is a giveaway that we'll continue to do over and over, different times. You know, say, hey, leave us a review. So just screenshot it and tweet it to at State of America and follow us on Twitter. That would that would be great uh, because uh, our uh, we've gained a few t- Twitter followers in the last week, but we'd like for it to be uh, a lot more than what it is. And uh, uh, like. Uh, Ian was saying they went on tour and released those songs. Uh, this was the tour that Ian and I first saw the Crows live on. And I think it's really cool, Ian. Uh, they did the Oasis and Space Hog tour, Brotherly Love tour, which when I heard it was coming out, I was like, oh, that would be great because Oasis is one of my favorite bands. But then I said to myself, this has got train wreck written all over it. And then, <laughs> and then both fans say it's their favorite tour they've ever done. Yeah. And, and, uh, <coughs> A big highlight of the tour for me too, and and a lot of people don't realize this, but Space Hog was the opener, and I was a, a champion of Space Hog. Like they had a, a really big radio hit called In the Meantime, and they were their composed sec- of brothers as well, right? Yeah, yeah, they're they're two they're two brothers, and they're they're the band is from New York City, but they're actually English guys that relocated to New York City. But um, they had a second album called the Chinese Album, which is out of print at this point, and not a lot of people heard it. But I mean, I I would recommend that album to anybody. I'm but, gonna have to. I'm so gonna- that was. Say again? I'm gonna have to go pull that up. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, so that was a bonus for me. But uh, you know, yeah, that was it, my first run with them. Um, they, you know, like I said, they all said that it was one of their favorite uh, tours. And you'd have to wonder how much that tour played into Paul Stacy and Jeremy Stacy working their way into kind of the the Crows universe. It definitely had to because he, you know, he was with Oasis first. I think, I think that's how they all met, really. And um, you know what what Paul Stacy did for both Chris Robinson and the Black Crows, you know, uh, for a, a, an extended period of time. I mean, that's a whole other topic we can get into. But uh, a lot of people don't appreciate that guy as much as they should, really. But he uh, he saved them, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. yeah. Stepping in on on that tour. Uh, I was going to ask you, um, there's some notable songs that were left off the album. Uh, Yes. Particularly Last Time Again, Love Is Now, uh, Things A Pretty Girl Will Make You Do, and Sleepyheads. I mean, what are your thoughts on those? I'm not a big fan of Sleepyheads. Uh, Nobody is. is. (laughs) Love Is Now. Um uh, it just it doesn't do a lot for me. Last time again, I think it's really good. I think thinks a pretty girl will make you do is a good song. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, of all them, last time again, I think is the the best one. And actually, Magpie played that at some at one of the shows I was at, and I thought that was cool. The only thing about last time again is the middle section of that is screaming for a guitar solo that never never arrives. That would be my only complaint with that one. But you know, I'm surprised it didn't make it the album it was strong enough for me to have been on there. Um, Love is now is kind of 
I don't come back to it often, but I don't dislike it. There's a cool little passage at the end where you can hear them. If you crank, crank the volume up, you can hear them talking to each other, you know, like studio banter. That's kind of cool. But uh, Sleepyheads, I don't even know if I should uh, mention it. You know, it, uh, we might get hurt. It's, <laughs> it's such a Beatles ripoff. It is. I, when, when I was listening to it, again, you know, to, for the episode, going back to it, I haven't listened to it in years. And I thought the one positive thing about it really was it shows just another genre that they that the Black Crows can pull off. Because to me, that's like, that's really, it's almost like a children's song, you know? And it's a very positive song and it's very pleasant. And it's all, you know, but I mean, I, it doesn't, it certainly doesn't belong on a record. It's definitely best relegated to a B-side standing. Yeah, you'll see, used to, you used to see a lot of references to that on the uh, message boards. Uh, yeah. you know, about how bad it was. Um, yeah, I, I think you take, you know, you take Lickin' or for me, young man, old man off and put on, uh, things a pretty girl will make you do. And last time again, and it, it greatly benefits the album. Yeah. I mean, things a pretty girl will make you do actually the, the guitar playing on that, it, it, it almost is like a precursor to hookah Brown as far as I'm concerned. It um, it's the same very very drop tuning and, and deep riffs that, that Rich came to be known for for that a period of years from like oh one to you know oh four or whatever you know primarily during Hooker Brown and his solo stuff but I always liked that riff. So do you think we changed anybody's mind today? I hope so. You know, I hope I hope we we did it enough that it would at least make some folks interested in, in, in hearing what we had to say and go back and tr- give it a shot. I'm not saying it has to become your, uh, your ultimate favorite record. And I'm not expecting that because, you know, it, it's, it's almost a 20 year old record, you know, but, uh, I think a lot of people passed over it to start with. And I think time might change some people's minds and hopefully we've changed some people's minds on it. Well, hopefully it's an album that like, you know, Bull Moose has got the Lost Crows coming out uh, on a um, limited edition run, which I was fortunate enough to jump on that one real quick and get it. And I got the uh, Before the Frost blue and white colored uh, vinyl uh, that was released. I'm hoping Lines is Lions Lines and Crowology. I hope are the two that um, that get that treatment soon. I do too, mostly for the fact that I know you've been dying to get Crowology on vinyl. Oh, and uh, $300 it, it goes for a small it. fortune. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope for your sake that comes out because I, I want you to have that. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it would be really great if people went and, uh, and, and enjoyed it based on what we've talked about here today, you know, because that's the whole point, really. Yeah, and like Ian said at the beginning, we're going to do more of these. We're doing for, you know, every album, uh, Crows, do, you know, rich stuff new earth mud uh, we're, but in the future we're probably going to have one of you uh, on that's a fan or maybe uh, uh, somebody that played on the album or produced the album uh, we just got a lot of fun ideas for that so stick with us this is one we want to do just the two of us because it was special to us yes absolutely and, and in that on that same note I've you know loosely reached out to a few uh, fellow fans and I believe David has done the same but if, if anybody has an interest in a particular record or a particular topic uh, you've heard us mention or anything like that, and you think you'd like to, uh, you know, be a, you think you'd be a candidate to join us? We're more than happy to uh, 
to entertain that idea. So get in touch with us, uh, stateofamorica at gmail.com. And uh, before we uh, hit the road here, David, would you mind running down all the various places we can be found? Yes. On- uh, Twitter at State of America, uh, Instagram, State of America Podcast. Uh, we have the State of America Podcast Facebook page that Ian runs. Uh, on Spotify, each week we post a uh, playlist corresponding to uh, uh, the topic and, and songs that we mentioned um, on there each week. Uh, we really want to thank everybody for uh, listening. The feedback uh, is uh, has been phenomenal. Uh, as you were talking, Ian, I pulled up our Gmail account, and we'll ha- you'll have to look at it uh, when you get uh, when you get off. Very cool email that we just got from somebody, and uh, we may have to talk about that on um, the next uh, podcast. So, uh, Ian, this week kind of kind of ran the show, and I think he did a, a really good job on it. And uh, so, we're going to switch that up uh, to where sometimes I kind of take the lead, and Ian takes the lead, and. Uh, normally, I throw to Ian for him to give us a song to play out on, but I'm going to throw it to myself this time. Uh, <laughs> what we're going to listen to is off the official live album from this tour with Audley Freed. It's the it's the documentation of Audley Freed in the band live. Uh, it's a song that uh, Ian and I absolutely love. It's the lead track off the of lines. It's the lead track off of uh, the live album. The song is Midnight from the Inside Out. Take care and stay tall.